Hi, Stephen. Michael Perret here. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Hi, this is Stephen. Michael Pere joins me on the show today to discuss his role as the main villain in the high-spirited, revenge-themed western, Once Upon a Time in Deadwood. I built this town into something. My men told me that you're refusing to service the cowboys who came in today. They paid good money for you, and I had to refund them. I told you I wasn't a whore. Yeah, you told me you weren't, but you are now. You're a hostess. It's your new life. It can be comfortable. Ask any of the other girls. I'm not looking for comfort. I'm looking to go home. But a home is no longer an option for you. A notorious gunslinger with a rather strong resemblance to legendary film icon Charles Bronson. I don't let the bad guys win or leave. It's poisoned and only has three days to track down and rescue a beautiful stranger's sister who has been kidnapped by a gang of hoodlums. Welcome to Michael Perret, Once Upon a Time in Deadwood. Hi, friends and listeners. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. This is host, Stephen Brittingham. Season two is underway, and I am thrilled to be bringing you the listeners more meaningful interviews. And I am truly grateful to have so many amazing and talented folks visit me here on Hollywood and Beyond. Speaking of amazing and talented, it is a true honor to have Michael Pere as a guest today. An absolutely remarkable career that includes many memorable roles such as Eddie Wilson in 1983's Eddie and the Cruisers. With a sequel to follow years later in 1989's Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives. Other iconic roles include Streets of Fire and The Philadelphia Experiment. The list goes on and on too. 
Michael joins me today, though, to discuss one of his latest roles. That being a villain in the gritty revenge-style western, Once Upon a Time in Deadwood. It is my pleasure to welcome one of Hollywood's hardest-working actors, and once again, a true honor for me, Michael Perret. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, sir. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. My true pleasure. Where are you joining me from today? I'm from Los Angeles, California. Well, it's so nice to have you on the show today to discuss uh, one of your latest roles. I viewed the film last night, and definitely a very gritty film. Um, as I just mentioned, uh, definitely the revenge-style approach. And I'm very excited uh, to be speaking with you today about the film. So thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. It was a great, you know, it was a great experience and a fun movie to make. Uh, Bronzy is amazing. Uh, as, uh, you know, Charles Bronson's, uh, I guess, what would you call that? An homage to Charles Bronson movies? Yes. Yes. And, and we shot that up in, uh, central California in a great Western town. And, uh, you know, it's very popular today to use electronic guns and lay in the, the, uh, the sound and the flash later on, but we use practical guns this time. And that's always more fun for the actors. Very interesting, because I noticed uh, the, the type of sound the guns were making. So that explains the reasons why very well there. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, because of safety and, uh, you know, gun restrictions and stuff like that. And uh, it's much quicker to say we'll lay it in later in post. And the blood hits are uh, easier to lay in in post. But these guys decided that, no, we're going to do it the classic Hollywood Western way. And uh, it's a lot more fun. I think it looks better. And, uh, you know, it plays better. I completely agree with you on all of that. I mean, you hear the sounds and it, it, it truly sounds like a, a gun is going off. And it's really going to hurt if someone gets hit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Michael. You don't play the hero in this film, in case folks were not aware of that. So how would you best describe your character to the listeners out there today? Well, you know, at this point in history, you know, it's between the uh, Civil War and the automobile. That, that's a great time for Westerns. And people are searching out their fame and fortune in the West. And, uh, you know, desperation, ruthlessness, and greed, you know, drive you know, the evil part of humanity. Um, well, I guess, you know, desperation doesn't drive evilness, but it, it makes you uh, capable of doing things you normally wouldn't do. Uh, you know, owning your own town, you know, three generations after that, he's probably running for Congress or the Senate. <laughs> you know, yes. There's a lot of, a lot of dirty blood, you know, in the history of that old money in the United States. Sure. Especially out, uh, you know, out west or out in the rugged frontier, so to speak. That was a very good description, Michael. Thank you. And I also like that you're thinking like an actor because you're thinking about, you know, the reasons why your character is behaving the way that he does. Yeah, well, you know, a lot, a lot of your job as an actor is to sympathize and love your character in a compassionate way and understand what drives them. You know, desperation allows people to do anything they need. 
you know, everybody says, I would understand someone who has to steal a loaf of bread to feed his family. Well, that's an act of desperation, but desperation is subjective, you know, and, uh, you know, it's not the best part of humanity, but it's a very real part of humanity and something that most people actually struggle with. It would be much easier to steal than to work for something, uh, to take what's free, you know, to take a handout instead of earn it. You know, it's, it's a, it's a great thing to analyze, you know, and it, it often can get you in trouble because you got to remember every person is an individual and every person has their own motives and needs and dreams. So, uh, I deal with them one at a time, you know, instead of getting political, I just think, you know, people can do the strangest things and the most horrible things and the most noble and honorable thing. It just depends on the story that you find yourself in. And if you add the element of survival, Michael, that can impact how a character or, or a person, so to speak, I mean, how they're going to approach whatever environment they happen to find themselves in. Exactly. That's why I say desperation is an act of survival or, you know, in your mind, what you need, I must have. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's very little that we really must have. Now, Michael, I was, I'm thinking, and you know, you have appeared in so many uh, fantastic and interesting films, definitely a lot of variety, but how many Westerns have you done over the course of your career? I think about four or five, you know, sometimes I lose count because if I'm only on it for a couple of days, it really doesn't feel like it's my role, you know, my movie. But, uh, let's see, I did Traded, Big Kill, Bone Tomahawk. This one that we're talking about now, and uh, there might be another one in there. So four or five. Um, there's rumors of doing Traded Two, which is kind of exciting because that was uh, that was another great western to make. You know, we had a great cinematographer. It was a classic western story. You know, the great thing about westerns is it's uh, like American mythology. You know, when you think of westerns, you think of the United States. Very true. Uh, definitely a, a very true statement there. Although, you know, very interesting things are going around, going on all over the world in that period. Because, like I say, it's just before the automobile, before the age of industrialization. And, you know, you see people living by ingenuity. And, uh, you know, you just see that it's about to blossom. Speaking to somebody yesterday, and they said that uh, Dayton, Ohio is the, the home of uh, aviation, you know, the birthplace of oh, aviation. Yes. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. So, I mean, this is right around just before we took to flight, you know, uh, the, the air balloon, you know, the hot air balloon was, was the beginning, but 60 years after Kitty Hawk, we walked on the moon, you know? So it's like, we're just like a seed coming out of the ground and about to explode into a whole new stage of humanity of the human race. I mean, that is fascinating to think about all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's why when you see these people doing these desperate, you know, what you might see as horrible things, it's like anything can happen the next moment. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a really cool part of, you know, in, in, you know, human history. And just think how the Eastern part of the country was advanced in, in, in some aspects that out West wasn't. And then it was kind of just moving bit by bit across the country. 
and and you like you described it, it it's on the cusp of change and yet we still yeah. have this intense uh scenario with um the storyline and the characters yeah 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 it was a great it was a great experience man i i i may work with renee again i'll definitely work with jeff again and, uh, you know, the girls, I, the two girls that I worked with, I know there were other girls in the cast, but, uh, you know, we're great to, to work with professional, excited about the movie, excited about the role. Uh, you know, the scene in the jail with Lauren Compton was really funny. She, I think she does more comedy than uh, drama. Yes. You know, and it, when you're making a Western, you have to have fun because it's cold. You know, you're wearing these dirty old clothes. It's, you know, it's, it's often not the best conditions, but it helps you get into that moment. Oh, very true. Very true. And I did pick up on some moments of, of humor, Michael. Like, sometimes I went, wow, I think that was kind of intentionally to be a little bit humorous. So I really enjoyed <laughs> your description there. Um, I just noticed that from time to time. And, and I thought that was an interesting element to bring to such a story. And I must bring up, you mentioned earlier about Charles Bronson and the uh, gentleman that um, is your character's nemesis, so to speak, or eventually would become his nemesis. The resemblance to Charles Bronson is, is really uh, offsetting. It, it really, yeah. the first time I saw a picture of him being a big Charles Bronson fan, having grown up in the eighties and appreciating his amazing career i mean i had to actually do a double take it, it looked like charles was back somehow <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh they, they they do that really well they sure do of course there was only one charles bronson but the the, the right. appearance i realize the rest of the journey will take longer now but we still need to go forward how much further by foot I'd estimate another two or three days. Surely a strong man like you can make that simple journey. But not with your poison coursing through my blood. I'm very curious when using guns on this, a set, and let's just focus on this movie because you described all of that so well earlier. Some folks may just wonder, you know, how loud does it really sound when you're actually filming? Uh, it's as loud as a real gun. Gotcha. You know, they have this thing where uh, in uh, like an automatic weapon, you know, like a, a 45 automatic, they've got to use a full load in order to make the uh, ejection thing work. All right. Yes. And uh, with revolvers, they often use a quarter load because there's no ejection. You know, they don't need the gas. But uh, Renee used full load. So it, it's, it sounds like a real gun. You know, there's no difference. And you know, I go to gun clubs. I, I know exactly what a real gun sounds like. Well, I, I tell you what, Michael, um, with my experience as an actor, uh, I, I worked on the film A Rage in Harlem, and the guns were enormously loud. So like you said, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, if you're not fun. knowing what's going on, it's going to catch your attention, isn't it? Right. And you know what, though? It's nice to react to the real sound. You know, as an actor, it's, you know, the more real the set and the props and uh, the wardrobe the less you have to act because it's it's real you know so you're reacting to reality instead of using your imagination which is always you know the fallback for any any performance but when uh, the more real stuff around you the easier it is 
And when it comes to blocking, as far as this film goes, was that something a bit on the, you know, uh, taking extra time to get it all sorted out due to the gunplay and, and, and the movement? Or did you find that it was paced very well in, in regards to blocking? Uh, blocking was no problem. You know, everybody uh, involved in this had done it before, so it wasn't like you were teaching anybody or anybody was, like, unfamiliar with the situation. So, uh, no, that moved quickly. There was no, uh, let me show you how to do this stuff. Uh, <laughs> no explanation necessary because you guys are exactly. all pros at it. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, when you're shooting quick and short, you want people who have done it before. Absolutely. And I enjoyed all that, that snow that showed up later, Michael. <laughs> Yo, what a surprise, huh? <laughs> it really, you know, it, it makes things, uh, with all the violence going on and the intensity, it kind of just adds a little peacefulness in the background that, you know, maybe uh, there'll be better days down the road for certain characters. Yeah. And yeah. Michael, I, I'd like to get your thought on the premise of the storyline, as I mentioned during the opening segment, with the character uh, being poisoned and only having three days to uh, rescue uh, her sister from your clutches, so to speak. I mean, I actually thought that was, um, you know, a, a very gripping storyline. It gets your attention right away. Well, you know, the ticking clock is a really useful uh you know, ploy to use in movies because, you know, that adds like uh, urgency. And so, you know, what, what's going to happen next? What, what are they going to do? Oh my goodness. You know, all that stuff is great. Yeah. It's, you know, it was a really well-written script also. Yes. And, and, and like you said, if you, the viewer, you start counting down the uh, hours along with the character. <laughs> exactly. Clock. A, a ticking clock. Well said. Well, I did want to yeah. mention that uh, the film was not only filmed in t- portions of texas but also in spain which another connection right. to charles bronson because you were apparently at the location or nearby where once upon a time in the west was filmed exactly well that is exactly that is that's ironic. probably where they got the uh, <laughs> final title from right wow wow now had you uh, filmed in spain before over the years yeah i worked in madrid um I forget when it was, probably sometime in the late 80s. Uh, I was there for eight weeks in Madrid and Valencia and uh, Toledo. So, yeah, Spain is a great place. You know, it's very photogenic and it has that, those vast plains in Valencia. Uh, Spain's a great place and a lot of cinematographers are fantastic eyes. You know, it's like for some reason, you know, the Italian cinematographers, the Spanish cinematographers, they... Well, also, the, you know, the Czechoslovakian and the Hungarians, they just, for some reason, they, they produce a lot of uh, cinematographers and photographers and painters. I mean, you know, Dali's from Spain, right? That's There's right. There's a whole bunch of painters from Spain, actually. There must be something in the water over there. Something in the water, <laughs> I think it's more because of the, uh, the, the weather, you know, and the clouds sure. floating by. You become aware of natural light. You know, there's even a term they use, um, Rembrandt lighting. If you look at those, all those Dutch painters, those Dutch masters, and you look at the light, there's always the clouds that explain the different qualities of light. You know, uh, the Spanish and the Italians and, uh, you know, no, well, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's just, I've had great experience with Spanish and Italian cinematographers. 
Well, that's great to hear. And I'm just very curious, Michael, when you were growing up, was Westerns something that you found appealing? Oh, of course. Of course. You know, like I say, that's American mythology. You know, all the John Wayne and, and Dean Martin movies and Kirk Douglas and gosh, even once upon a time in America. I mean, these, these are classics. These are classics. And, uh, you know, they were a classic hero journey. Yeah. These are these Westerns, you know, they, they tell you something about humanity and, and, and what people need to know. They sure um, do. Star Wars, they said, is actually like a Western plot. But all the plots go back to the ancient Greeks. And, you know, revenge is a, is a great, great storyline. It sure is. It provides so many layers to the, to the storyline and, and yeah. about humanity, like you just mentioned. And, and, and you know what? I, even though I say I grew up in the 80s, I was actually born in the 70s, Michael. I just got to throw that in there. But while uh-huh. I was growing up, my grandparents raised me. And my grandfather, who I called dad, was a huge fan of Western movies and World War II movies. And I grew up experiencing Kurt Douglas, John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, Richard Widmark. And it left a lasting impression on me. I mean, uh, I still love those uh, movies. and, um, and, And I think that's where I have an appreciation for Westerns was just that time period of that exposure. Yeah. What was the one, The Searcher? And you see oh. poor John Wayne degenerate into a, a hateful, angry old man, right? Yes. Yes. That was sad to see that happen to John Wayne. And uh, what was that? The Cowboys. With, oh, uh, yes. With Bruce Dern and John Wayne. I worked with Bruce and I asked him about that. And he said, John, you know, he hated dying on film and he hated that I killed him. So when we had that fight scene, he beat the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love hearing stories about legends like that. And, yes. And to work with somebody like Bruce Dern was a real honor. Well, I remember the first time I saw The Alamo, which to me, right. oh, wow, that film is just outstanding achievement. And when John Wayne's character dies, of course, based on historical fact, it still is very unsettling, isn't it? You're just not used to seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man, you know, you never get tired of a good Western. You can watch it over and over again. It's like good music, you know? That's right. And like I tell people, just like you, Michael, just think about your career. Stuff that you did decades ago, it still has meaning today. Because um, uh, it will live on, and that's the beautiful thing about artistic projects, that uh, they, they, they live on even years later. Well, Michael, before we conclude, I wanted to just get your... Uh, thoughts and opinion on this because you are the perfect person to ask you've worked with so many people over the years is there a quality that you see in the extra good ones the actors that bring a little extra to the table is there a quality that just kind of stands out when you think back well you know when you look in their eyes you know they mean what they're saying you know, that's why uh, it's so important, you know, the two shots, you know, to, to do the, the wider shots first when both actors are in the scene. Because sometimes for a variety of reasons, the other actor isn't there for the close-up. You know, so if you shoot the two shot first, you can play the other character, play the other actor. 
And uh, the really great actors do their off camera because they care about the whole production and not just their, their part. You know, it's like working with Bruce Dern, you know, we, we spent a lot, not a lot of time, but in between takes, you know, talking to each other and uh, finding out, you know, when there was sincere, when you were sincere and when you were really into the moment. And uh, yeah, I guess the real trick is when you look them in the eye, they mean what they're saying and they're hearing what you say. Thank you for sharing all of that, Michael. Um, I really appreciate it. And, and like I said, you would be the, the man that would have something to say about all of that. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Michael, a true pleasure. I, I had so much fun speaking with you today. I can't thank you enough. When I actually created Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, I had a secret list of, of, of folks that I would like to have on the show. I suppose they call that a wish list, Michael. And you were on the list. So uh, this means a lot to me. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Stephen. Take care, and maybe we'll talk in the near future. That sounds good to me. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. Hollywood and Beyond podcast created, produced, and hosted by actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening.